Well, I think if you pick up the passage, and hopefully you've still got it open on page 1010, Mark chapter 7, you can see what it's all about. This word defiled comes up quite a lot. So chapter 7, verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And then verse 15, which is arguably the key verse of the whole passage, Jesus pronounces, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Now, to talk of defilement is kind of um, pretty rare nowadays, and um, it was much more used in a religious setting then. But the word means to be unclean, unfit before God. The word we probably use is guilty. It's talking about the consequence of something you might do that would make you unfit um, before a holy God. Now, when we think of guilt today as a society, I put it to you that we've got a really paradoxical relationship with feelings of defilement and guilt. On one hand, we're a society that says frequently we should, and indeed we have, completely done away with ideas of guilt. We've consigned them to the past. On the other hand, I think we're a society obsessed with guilt. Uh, let's just think about that for a moment. On one hand, we try to do away with guilt feelings. So we're told that guilt was... Um, a tool often used in traditional societies, usually by religion, to manipulate and control people. So people would feel guilty, and then they'd have to come to the church or to the priest who would tell them to do certain things, like give money or um, give their devotion and their service to the church, and it was a way to control people. Thank goodness we say that we've moved on from such antiquated notions as though God is some great big divine who's walking around with a big divine stick ready to hit people, and that's just a, a tool of manipulation and control. So Nietzsche has told us that guilt is weakness. Sartre has told us that guilt is inauthenticity. Uh, Freud has told us that um, guilt is just mere neuroses, and so we do away with it. And if you have feelings of guilt, then you go to a counselor to try to deal with them and psychologize them and deal with them that way. Now, please hear me. I'm not having a go at counseling. I'm just observing the general phenomenon that um, counseling and therapy is in large part now a way to deal with feelings of guilt and to get rid of them because we don't want them. Prison, for example, has been changed from a place where you go to make amends for your guilt to being a place of rehabilitation, uh, to get people ready to rehabilitate them and bring them back in society. And so much the better, we often say. So we don't want to talk about guilt. But on the other hand, well, I think we're obsessed with it as a society. So think of all of the reviews and inquiries that we have now. Did you know before 1990, there had only been 19 public inquiries in total? In 2017, there were nine just in that year alone. We have so many inquiries. And why, why do we have such an interest in inquiries today? Establishing the whys and wherefores of whether it's Hillsborough or cash for peerages or the war in Iraq or anything else you can think of? Well, because we're obsessed with finding out who's guilty, <laughs> who's to blame for whatever it is that's happened. And public inquiries are the way we do that nowadays. So on one level, I think we, we don't talk about guilt at all. We like to think we've done away with it. On another level, as a society, we seem to be obsessed with it. And I wonder if in your own life, to make it a bit more personal, you have something of that relationship. On one level, I wonder if you spend a lot of time trying to convince yourself that you are not guilty. Uh, many philosophers have said one of the great questions that every human being has to deal with is how do you get past your past? Now, we all have a past. We all have skeletons in the closet. And one of the questions is how do we deal with that? We often have well-honed responses to deal with that. So we often deny 
our guilt. No, 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 I didn't do anything. There's nothing to see here. And we just kind of put it away and try and put on a, a bold face, as it were. Or we deflect when guilt comes along. Well, it, it, it's not me. I mean, did you see how he cut me up in the road? I mean, I was just responding, but he was the primary culprit pointing the finger at someone else to deflect. Or we get defensive when someone comes along and raises something with us about what we might have done or how we might have wounded them. How dare you talk to me that way? Don't talk to me like that, as though the phrasing is the problem rather than what you did, right? Now, I'm sure you're all far too nice and none of you do those things, it's just me. But those different ways of dealing with guilt are well-honed psychological responses that we have to try to push it out there. And what's interesting in this passage is Jesus identifies another way that people then would try to deal with guilt, and many people still today, which is human religion. And if you're a guest here, it might be surprising that what we're going to see is that human religion is never, never going to be a way to deal with those, those feelings of guilt and the object of guilt. It doesn't do it. It can't cut it. So we're going to look at this passage as Jesus engages with these religious leaders, and we're going to see why human religion and its failings can never deal with guilt. And then we're going to delve a little bit deeper to try to work out um, where the problem is located. So let's look, first of all, at human religion and its failings. Human religion and its failings. Now, as Mark said, we're, we're coming back into Mark's gospel. We're kind of just a little bit under halfway through. That's because we're picking up from last autumn where we got to. And so we're kind of parachuting in. So let me give you um, some of uh, the context so you get your bearings. The first six chapters of Mark's gospel have all been about who is Jesus. And Mark launches his gospel off at a breakneck speed with the claim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Christ or Christos is the Greek word for an anointed one, God's anointed king. So he makes the claim straight away that Jesus is God's anointed king. He's the Son of God. And then Mark goes about trying to prove it by pointing to Jesus' identity through what he does miracles that Jesus does that only God could do. And in chapter 6, we've just had one of the great miracles as Jesus has walked on water. So if you flick back a page, you'll see um, chapter 6, verse 50. Just flick back a page. Chapter 6, verse 50, and you see the heading in bold above, Jesus walks on water. This is after Jesus just fed 5,000 people. And in the context of walking on water, Verse 50, all the disciples see him and are terrified, and immediately Jesus speaks to them and says, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Now, in the original, Jesus says, take courage, I am, don't be afraid. And that's poignant and significant because in the Old Testament, one of God's names for himself, one of the great names in the Exodus is I am. That's where we get the word Yahweh from. It's what it means in Hebrew, I am who I am, or Jehovah as it's sometimes translated. So when Jesus says, take courage, I am, he's making a clear claim to divinity. And on the back of that, with Mark having constructed his case that Jesus is nothing less than the divine Son of God, the Christ, God's anointed one, he then wants us to see how people respond to that. And so straight away, we get verse 53, and we get a group of people coming to see Jesus responding to his claim. And these are people we should emulate. Notice verse 54, they recognize Jesus. Verse 55, they run to Jesus. Verse 56, they're humble before Jesus. They beg him to let them touch even the edge of the cloak to get healing. And we think this is the right response. But then the surprise is that we come to the Pharisees in chapter 7, verse 1, and they come to Jesus with a very different agenda. They gather around Jesus, and verse 2, they see some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed, 
and verse 5, the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? So two groups who come to Jesus, one comes eagerly, the other one comes skeptically. One comes humbly, the other one comes elevating them in a position of trying to be an authority and question Jesus. See the difference? And behind these different approaches are very different views of what's going on in our hearts. Now, we need to be careful. We're obviously a fair way away from Christmas, and the Pharisees are often cast as the kind of Christmas season pantomime baddies of the New Testament. That is a childish way of reading the New Testament, not accurate at all. They were the Bible-believing, religiously devoted, Torah-studying, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, people. They were committed to purity, and yet they get this tragically wrong. So if they get it wrong, please, please, even if you've been coming to church for a while, do sit up and think you potentially could be making the same mistake. And what is their mistake? Well, it's human religion. Look at verse 3. We get this phrase, tradition of the elders repeated. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. And they observe many other traditions, verse 4. Verse 5, why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders? So this is a particular type of religion. This is human religion, where they've taken God's good commands given in the Old Testament, and they've added to it various things which have been honed over many years, the traditions, and they are now giving those traditions the same level of authority as God's command. They're saying they need to do this. And look, they're looking down their nose at those who don't do it, and they're thinking well about themselves because they do it. This is the problem. And Jesus says in verse 6, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. Three dangers with human religion based on human traditions rather than based on God and what he reveals about himself. First problem with it is it's hypocritical. To be a hypocrite, that word that Jesus used in the first century meant someone who acted in the marketplace. And the actors would be uh, there with masks. And to portray different characters, they would grab a mask and they put it in front of them. And then they put a slightly different voice on. And they'd be one character. And then they'd swap the mask and put on the other character. And Jesus says, if you base your religion on human traditions, human religion, human commands, you are like that person. You have a veneer of respectability. You seem to be devout and committed to God. But actually, you're a hypocrite because you've got a mask on that's deceiving everybody. And he gives a great example, or rather a terrible example, of that type of hypocrisy in verse 9 and following, where he talks about a tradition that they had set up called korban. And what that meant in the, um, uh, in the first century was that someone could say, I want to devote my money to serving God. And they would take a vow in the temple before the Pharisees to say, my money is korban, devoted to God. But then, when it came to fulfilling their basic obligations, and you know, there's a comment here about the importance of looking after your parents, but in a traditional society, and particularly in a Hebrew society, the importance of looking after parents was ingrained in the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. So as they got elderly without a welfare state, you had to care for them. And so your parents would need caring for, and someone would say, well, they're not doing too well. Why aren't you caring for them? You'd say, oh, well, I can't. I mean, I devoted my money to God. Do you see? I mean, it looks so devout, doesn't it? I've devoted my money to a higher cause. But God has commanded in the fifth commandment, look after your parents. 
So you're negating the command to look after your parents by a veneer of devotion and religion. And he says, that's the problem. You Pharisees, you allow things like this to happen. In fact, you propagate it. You look like you're drawing near to God, but you're hypocrites. You're not doing the very basic things that God wants, caring for the poor, caring for your parents, caring for people in your midst. That's what he wants. Not some high-minded religious devotion that actually lacks substance, that is all just hypocrisy. So he says, hypocrisy, beware of human traditions and hypocrisy. Secondly, the problem is that it draws us away from God. Look at that quote from Isaiah 29 in verse 6. Isaiah 29 in verse 6, he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Here, in some sense, is what is particularly problematic with human religion, is that it looks devoted, but actually it is a very sophisticated mechanism of keeping God at arm's length. Here's how it works. If you discern that there are certain things that you think that God wants you to do, external behaviors, then for God to be pleased with you, all you have to do is certain external behaviors. Uh, Wash your hands before meals, observe that, tick, can do that, nice and easy. But if God merely wanted that, he would have commanded that. But God has got a much higher standard. What does God want of us? What Jesus once asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In other words, God wants far more of you and me than just a few actions. He wants all of us, our hearts, our everything. He wants our all and everything. And if he made us and if he's redeemed us, then he gets the right to ask of everything from us. And that is how we draw near to God, by offering him everything in response to all that he's done for us. But human religion says, no, just do a few things, tick the box and move on. Do you see how it works? It looks so devoted, but actually it's a very good tool of keeping God at arm's length, not giving him your all, your heart, the hardest thing to give. Just do a few things, come on Sunday, God will be happy, go back and carry on as though nothing's changed. Oh, that's easy to do, but it keeps God distant from you. So it's hypocrisy, it keeps God at arm's length, and finally it incurs God's judgment. The quote from Isaiah 29 is from a passage where God is pronouncing judgment on his people for this type of behavior. He says, you know what I want, you know what I call for, and you're constantly pushing me to the peripheries by using your own religion to do it. They worship me in vain, verse 7, their teachings are merely human rules, and he goes on to say in Isaiah 29, I will judge you for it. So hypocrisy, distance from God, all leading to God's judgment. In the Prohibition era in the United States, um, alcohol was banned, and so you couldn't go and buy alcohol, but people still did, and people still consumed alcohol. But of course, the way that it was done was on the black market, and so what would happen was a very respectable shop would be set up, something like a sweet shop that looks innocent and sweetness and light, and you take your children into the sweet shop, and then you talk to the man over the counter, and you'd say, do you sell any adult sweets? And he'd say, certainly, sir, as the children were buying the jelly beans, and he'd sell you alcohol under the counter. Do you see how that prohibition-era racket works? The veneer of respectability and innocence, and yet you're trading illegal goods under the counter. Friends, Jesus is saying that is what human religion does. Oh, it looks very respectable, very devout, very committed to God above a sweet shop, if you like, smiling and all innocent, But actually, it's all a carefully constructed ruse to sell alcohol under the counter. The alcohol of keeping God at arm's length out of your life. The alcohol of hypocrisy. 
He says, that's what's going on. And he pulls the mask back from the Pharisees and brutally exposes them. But he only does it so they might realize their ways and change. Well, if that's the failings of human religion, let's delve a little bit deeper with Jesus now as he exposes why human religion doesn't work in verses 14 and following. Look with me at verse 14. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. When Jesus says, listen to me, you've really got to listen to him. He clearly wants us to get this. And notice it's to everyone, not just the religious, not just the Pharisees, not just the disciples, anyone and everyone. So by implication, that gets us in the room. So we need to listen. Verse 15, the shortest parable in the whole of the New Testament, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Do you all get that? Good, I'm glad, because the disciples didn't either, so we need to read on. Because the disciples don't get it. Jesus says to them, verse 18, are you so dull, he asked, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their hearts, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared, all food's clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Jesus is saying that defilement, our guilt before God, is not a function of what we do, of external things, whether you've observed certain behaviors or not. He says it's not about that. The problem is, he says, that is far too superficial. That's why the example of the food in that parable works, because food, bluntly speaking, and I'm married to a doctor, so I've checked this, and this apparently is all true with anatomy, is food just passes through you. And the body might take a few nutrients out of it, but it passes through you. It never really gets deep into you, never gets into your heart. But he says it's what comes from within, deep within your heart, that is the real problem of where guilt and defilement come before God. And what comes out of the heart? Well, the heart in Hebrew thinking is our desires. It's our settled affections. It's the things we long for, our hopes, our dreams, our nightmares, our aspirations. And he says, out of the heart come evil thoughts. And he gives a pretty hideous list of vices. Notice the heart is a place where thoughts come from, but it's not merely intellectual. And also notice that the things he describes are behaviors. The heart drives our behaviors, though it's not merely actions. The heart is the seat of our desires. Now, Jesus explained this. This is where our guilt comes from. And we've really got to get this. Because so many of us think that our fundamental problem are things we do or thoughts we have, Right? We think, what's wrong with me? Well, my thoughts are disordered. Uh, that's often the way that um, you know, we think of it today. My life isn't going the way I want, so what I need to do is to reorder my thoughts. Get my thinking straight, people talk about that. And a lot of counseling is about that. But if that is not predicated on biblical thinking, driven by desires that come changed in Jesus Christ, ultimately it will never get deep enough. Similarly, a lot of us think, well, the problem is my behaviors. I mean, after all, aren't those the things where I see that are going wrong in my life? My anger or upsetting people with my words. So sort out my behaviors. But again, Jesus says it doesn't go deep enough. Think of it like this. One of the most invasive weeds that you can get in any garden or property is Japanese knotweed. And the great problem with it is that when it sprouts up, people tend to think, oh, it's just another weed. And so they pull it out of the ground and they think, I've got it but it leaves behind just little roots, and on the end of those little roots that can go down as, two, down as deep as two meters are rhizomes. And those rhizomes grow independently. 
So whilst you pull it out of the ground and you think you've dealt with it, it is growing under the ground all the time. And the next thing you know, it pops up with four or five in different parts of the garden. So you pull those out and then they all start to grow. And before you know where you are, it's taken everything over. Jesus is saying our problem is just like that. If you just try to pull a few behaviors out or pull a few thoughts out, under the ground of our lives, in our hearts, it's growing. It's affecting, it's infecting everything, and it will sprout up in all kinds of unexpected places. But the problem is you're not getting deep enough. To deal with Japanese knotweed, apparently you've got to get right down to the roots, completely contain it, and rip the whole thing out. And so Jesus says with our hearts. I wonder if you're grappling with some problem at the moment. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while, and maybe you've been trying really hard. Maybe you've set lots of boundaries, good, wise boundaries in place. Don't go here, don't do this. Try and put this in place. But for all that you try, it's like Japanese knotweed, it just pops up in other places. That's probably because you're not getting to the heart of the matter. Or maybe you're thinking, if I just know things and, and um, get my thinking right, then I'll change. And despite all of that, you find in a moment it catches you off guard and it explodes again. You're thinking, where did that come from? Friends, do you understand the importance of the heart? That's why our second value here in Inspire is engaging the heart, because this is where real change happens. And this Wednesday, we're going to be doing on Wednesday night the real change course as we help one another to engage with our desires at a deep level. Please come along. It's one of the most important sessions we do, because having the Bible is key, but applying it to the heart is so important, because that's where change happens. Because it is not primarily thinking or behavior, it is our desires that change us, which is why up and down the country there will be theology professors who will know more about the Bible than any of us, and yet if they don't love God deep down in their hearts, their guilt remains. And there will be people across the world who act lives of devotion that would put us into the shade, but Jesus would say, if it is not driven by heartfelt desire and love for God, ultimately, it doesn't deal with anything. The heart, the importance of the heart. Well, lastly, as we look at this, you might be saying, okay, so the problem is deep in my heart. I'm starting to hear you on that. I'm not sure whether I fully accept that. But then how do I deal with my heart? And Jesus, largely in this passage, just shows us the problem, but I'm not going to us, leave us there just scratching our heads. Look with me at verse 19. There's a powerful hint here of how Jesus is going to deal with it. Verse 19, he says, it doesn't go into their hearts, but into their stomach and then out of the body. And then there's little brackets, but so important. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now, you might not think much of that. That's just a, um, a small concern for the Jews, isn't it, about which foods were clean. Shellfish wasn't, and other foods were, and Jesus declares all foods clean. So much the, um, for the point of interest. What does that matter for us? Well, in the original, when it says Jesus declared all foods clean, it doesn't have the word declared. It just means he made all foods clean. So it's, think of it, it's a bit less like a, um, a solicitor commenting on a law, on a legal case, and a bit more like the Supreme Court changing the law. So Jesus is acting with a kind of divine authority here. Who can change God's law? Well, Jesus apparently thinks he can. Another claim to divinity here, which is why it gets the Pharisees so hot under the collar. But he's changing the law. He's taking on the authority of the Lord, partly because he claims to have that authority, but also the other reason is because he claims to deal with our deepest problem, our hearts. In our reading that we had from Ezekiel 36, it prophesied about a day when God would deal with the deepest problem of every human being, when God would deal with our hearts. 
And how did Ezekiel say God would do that? Well, two key stages. First of all, God would take our hearts and he would cleanse them at a deep level, dealing with our wayward, distorted, sinful, morally failing desires. And after doing that, having washed us clean, he would then give us new hearts that want to follow God and live for God. You see, when Jesus gives this list in verse 21 and 22 of sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly, I wonder if when that list was read out, a bit like me when I first read it, you kind of think, oh good, I'm not one of the people in this list. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, don't do any of those things. Adultery, no. And then you read greed, and you think, how can I live in Western society and not be greedy? Malice, haven't I thought malicious thoughts about people? Deceit, haven't I deceived people? Of course I write it off like everyone else, like a white lie, it was for their good, but I'm just deceiving myself, which doubles the sin. Envy, slander. See, the beginning of the list looks like it's for people out there, but the end of the list and the middle part of the list makes it very clear it's in here. So suddenly you think, I've got a problem. The problem is not out there, the problem is in here. When Jesus said that list, he knew what he was going to do. He knew that at the cross, it was going to be the way that he would deal with the problem of the human heart. Think of your particular part in that list. Think of all the things you do. Think of how that affects you. You and I both know that in the small hours of the night when you wake up, it weighs on you. You're aware of the things you do. There's a weight to it. Guilt has always been associated with weight. Some people say the weight of it is crushing me. Jesus on the cross took the weight of every sin, all of your guilt. He said, give it to me. I will take it all. And it wasn't just a metaphor that it would crush him. It actually crushed him on the cross. He said, give it all to me. Sometimes we talk of the way that sin and our guilt is unbearable in those acute moments. But Jesus bore it for us so that the unbearable weight of it would not be unbearable for us anymore. He would take it all on him. He was crushed so that we might be liberated. He was considered on the cross, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, he who made him to know no sin, he made him sin so that we might in him become the righteousness of God. In other words, on the cross, God put all of the sin, all of that list on Jesus, and it weighed him down, crushed him down on the cross so that we might go free. So he said, you don't need to carry it anymore. Give it to me. I've been crushed so you can be liberated. I've been considered guilty, so you can be washed clean. I've been shut out so that you can come in. My friend, give it to me. So the choice is there for all of us. You can try to carry your guilt alone, deflecting it, deferring it, defending against it, denying it, or you can give it to Jesus. He says, come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden. Cast your sin on me and I will give you rest. Can I ask you, do you know that rest? The rest of a peaceful night's sleep, not because you're perfect, but because your sin has been paid for. And then Jesus says, take that, take that, give it to me. I will cleanse you and then I will give you a new heart. The work by the Holy Spirit to come into your heart and to change you from within. Such that when you become a Christian, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you suddenly find yourself thinking, I want to follow God. I want to give my all for God. I'm sad when I don't do that. And you never cared about that before. That's the surest work of the new heart. He says, give it all to me. I want to cleanse you. I want to change you. 
from the inside out, I will do heart surgery that no human religion can ever do. Well, let me close with two applications. First application for us as a church family here. Please notice this is not saying that all religion is bad. Not at all. It's talking about two types of religion. The religion that is predicated on what God has done in Jesus Christ, listening to his word, and the religion that is trying to add to that by human traditions. Now, of course, human traditions in and of themselves aren't bad. But if they contradict God's word or try to be an authority over God's word, they start to get in the way of God and his word, and then they become bad. So please, we have an open policy here in Inspire. If you see us doing anything which is not helping you to love God more, helping you to understand his word, helping you to follow Jesus more, talk to us about that. We have lots of religious elements here, but we believe they are all predicated on the word of God. And if they're not, then bring them under the authority of Scripture. Nothing can stand in the way of God and his word. We want to help you engage with that. And all of the things we do as a community here are to try to do that. And if they're not helping, talk to us. We must have God's word as the final authority in all things. Help us to do that. Second one, more of a personal application to you. I don't know how your September is going. I don't know how your summer was. I do know from experience pastorally that many people have difficult summers. They slip out of Christian routines. They do things they wouldn't normally do, and they come back in September racked with guilt. And maybe you're not a Christian here, and actually, as we're talking about guilt, certain things from the past are coming to you that bother you, that you're upset about. Jesus says you don't need to carry those. You have a choice. You can give them to me, maybe for the first time maybe just for the first time in a long time over the summer. Take your burdens, cast them on Jesus. He will carry them for you. Then you'll be cleansed, you'll be set free, and you'll be liberated to live him. There's nothing like it. Let me lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ who took our guilt, bore our burdens on the tree of Calvary. And as we'll sing Later on, on the Mount of Crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide, the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Might we know that vast, gracious tide of God's love and mercy from above so that we would know that we are forgiven and that our guilt has been dealt with. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.